We are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. Oh yeah, Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah! 30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Stephen T. Siegel's original graphic novel, It's a Bird, as well as Siegel's run on the Superman title, is the host of the Superhero Cinephiles podcast, returning guest, Perry Constantine. Welcome back. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having me back. Um, seems like I'm getting a reputation of being the guy who does these forgotten modern runs with you. Yes, this is becoming a little bit of a recurring theme when you're on the show. Last time we had you on, we talked about Joe Casey's Adventures of Superman run. It was great to revisit that and have that conversation. And to whatever extent it got people thinking about that run and that period of time, I'm glad because there was a lot of value in that run. And it was great to be able to revisit that with you. And so similarly here, we're looking at, I would argue, an even more forgotten run, Siegel's run on the main Superman title, which started with Superman, the 10 cent adventure. People probably remember that if, if anything, and then continued from issues 190 through 200. Now, as you know, and the audience knows, I complain about the DC app a lot. There's a ton on there. There are some gaps. And man, is this is this a glaring gap in the app? It just skips right over this entire run. It's never been collected. And I would venture to say if you polled 100 Superman fans, a decent number would probably know that this run existed. But the number of people who would be able to speak about it with any real degree of specificity, I feel would be a very, very small fraction. What, I mean, what do you think? No, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, um, when you asked me about this, uh, I was, my first reaction was Siegel did a Superman run. <laughs> I mean, I think if anything that people remember from this, it's probably the, the Sorel Supergirl. And even that is probably a reach because if not for, her appearance very briefly in Loeb's uh, Superman Batman run, I don't think I never would have remembered this character existed. Yes, I agree. I think that Supergirl character, short-lived though she was, that's probably the one other piece that people might remember. And I think exactly for the reason you said, that she popped up in Loeb's Superman Batman run. And I feel like recently, well, I guess not so recently because this movie's been 
taking forever to actually come out. But the Supergirl that's in the forthcoming Flash movie, I feel like when they first posted or we first saw images of that Supergirl, I guess the the look, the design was reminiscent enough of the Supergirl from this run. I remember people kind of posting uh, images from this run. So that might be another area where people made somewhat of a connection point, but otherwise, and I, I have to say, and I don't, mean, <laughs> I don't mean to be mean and I don't mean to be a jerk and we'll unpack all of it and we'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like. But I read this run or reread this run about a week ago when we were originally going to record and then I wasn't feeling well, we had to reschedule. Honestly, I had to flip through it again uh, earlier today because even, even over the span of a week, I was like, wait, what, what was in that run? So again, I don't mean to, I don't mean to put it down and call it a forgettable run, but, but maybe, maybe to an extent it, it, it is. No, I agree completely. In fact, I had that, that same feeling. Cause I, I read it, um, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm really, I got the two kids and everything. So my time when I can read comics is, you know, stolen moments here and there after they fall asleep. Uh, cause I read all digitally. And whenever I pull out the tablet, my daughter always wants to see what I'm looking at and she always wants to pl- touch it. Uh, so it, and so I read it like, um, I, I, I read through it about a month ago and I was making notes on it. And then, uh, and I was reading through my notes last night and just kind of like, again, flipping back through the issues, just like you, because I, I couldn't find a lot that was really memorable about it, to be honest. Yes. And just to put this run in context. So again, this is the lead up the year leading up to the anniversary Superman number 200. So this is after Jeff Loeb has departed the main Superman title, and it is shortly before Brian Azzarello and Jim Lee will do For Tomorrow. So it's sandwiched in between two, you know, two larger, more well-known runs uh, on the Superman title. And like I said, never collected, not available digitally in any form, app or otherwise. So again, this is one that seems to have really kind of flown under the radar I definitely bought and read it as it was coming out back in the day as I was buying all of the Superman books. It never, I guess, really made that much of an impression on me, only so much as I knew it was out there and I kind of had it in the back of my head. Maybe we'll hit it at some point on the podcast. I wasn't exactly sure that there was enough enough meat on the bone, enough to really hang an episode on. But sort of the other piece that kind of made everything click into place for me was Siegel's original graphic novel illustrated by Teddy Christensen called It's a Bird, uh, which came out in 2004 uh, via Vertigo. And people might likely know this more than they would know Siegel's run on the Superman title, but it's a semi-autobiographical tale as Stephen T. Siegel has been offered the opportunity to write Superman and is not interested, does not feel he can really access the character, doesn't have the affinity for the character that he feels he would need. And so you see him wrestling with the decision about whether or not to take this writing assignment over the course of the story, as he is also contending with this open secret within his family that his grandmother died from Huntington's disease, this rare, incurable uh, genetic disorder that he and or his brother might have as well. And all of the family dynamics and strife that come along with that. I had never read It's a Bird. I I knew of it. It was kind of on my radar, but I had never read it. Had you read it before this? No, I had never actually heard of it um, before you you talked to me about it. And then I was able to find it and and read through it. And 
Um, I actually read that before I read his Superman run because I kind of wanted to get a sense of where he was in in his frame of mind when he approached Superman. Um, and I actually I think I enjoyed that a lot more than I enjoyed his his actual Superman run. I think I can I can understand why he he had a he. I, I, you can see that he was having some difficulty when he was writing the Superman books, I think. Yes, it was definitely an interesting experience to read the graphic novel and the run together. I, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll save my assessment uh, for a little bit, but it was interesting. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that for now. But, you know, what's really funny is, again, you had not been aware of the, the original graphic novel, uh, a fellow guest Scott Honig who's been on the show a bunch of times he sent me in uh this this lovely email all about how much he loves it's a bird and he's a high school teacher and he actually uses it in his lesson plan and I'll share some of what he sent me a little bit later but it was funny he wrote me again just this beautiful email uh with some really wonderful takes on it's a bird and its value and uh how how instructive it can be specifically with respect to the writing process and then I wrote back, I said, oh, did you ever read Siegel's run on the Superman books? And he was like, no, I don't think I ever did. Or, you know, if I did, I don't really remember it. So, but again, I, th I think that's kind of, kind of telling. And it's just weird to kind of have this, this disconnect, even for people who know and love the graphic novel, that run just, just, we can't hold on to that run. You know, it's funny because I, I opened up Siegel's Wikipedia page and right at the beginning of it, it says he's best known for, uh, for It's a Bird. And that, that was kind of a that was kind of a, a shock for me because that I like I said I'd never heard of this. I mostly know him from his his Marvel work. Uh, he did um, he did a, a run on uh, relaunched Alpha Flight in the um, mid late nineties, and that led to him and Joe Kelly working together on the X Men books for a brief period. Um, so that's where I got introduced to him, and um, it's kind of funny because we've now had he. Joe Kelly, Joe Casey, and Duncan Rollo started um, the Man of Action uh, uh, creative writing team or development team. And so they've done things like the Ben 10 animated series. Um, they wrote some of uh, the Avengers Assembled animated series, the X-Men Legends video games, and a bunch of other stuff. And it's kind of funny when you look at those three characters, those three creators, the three writers in the group, and their contributions to, to Superman, because you've got... Joe Kelly, who is uh, very fondly remembered, um, arguably almost as big as Jeff Loeb in the in the modern Superman books, I'd say. Then you've got Casey, who, you know, like we talked about when we talked about his run, some people remember it, some people may not, but it's, and a lot of Casey's stuff has kind of got that curse about it where it, it there's, there are people out there who remember it, um, but it always seems to be cut short. And then you've got Siegel, who seems to be like the most unknown of the bunch. I, I think that's a I think that's a fair assessment. I do agree with you as far as Joe Kelly's stature. I mean, I, I in the in the Superman canon. I mean, in my mind, I always think of the two of those guys, Loeb and Kelly, together. And you know, Kelly stuck around on Action Comics long after Loeb had left Superman. So you know, he and you know, he wrote seven seventy five. He wrote eight hundred. You know, he wrote a couple of like milestone installments of action comics. So no, I, I totally agree with you. Let me also say as much as Siegel's work will be the bulk of what we talk about in this episode, we did also take a look at a pair of other runs from the pre-Infinite Crisis time period. One of them in particular, I've had a few requests for over the years, 
And it's such a truncated run. This was one of those things where I was like, I don't really know like what I would, <laughs> what I would really do with this. But we looked at the Action Comics run by Gail Simone and John Byrne from 827 through 835. And within those, within that short span of issues, there was an issue that tied into Sacrifice, the Sacrifice crossover, which we skipped, uh, as well as a fill-in issue. Uh, but the rest of those issues by Gail Simone and John Byrne. And this was after Joe Kelly and also after Chuck Austin. Perry, you might be shocked to know I've yet to get a single request for an episode on the work of Chuck Austin. Are you surprised by that? Are you serious? I mean, you know, the guy who did the exploding communion wafers in X-Men? You mean people aren't banging down the door for for uh, an episode on him? You know what's funny, though? I've been, to- I've been toying, toying with the idea of an episode on the Superman work of Chuck Austin because there's his year-long run on, on Action Comics and also that year-long Metropolis miniseries that he did. I don't think I'll really get to the point where I move forward on that, but it's kind of floating around out there because now we've, you know, with the, the various episodes we've done, like the, on Joe, Joe Casey on Adventures and Greg Rucka on Adventures and everything else we've done and we're talking about now, there really aren't. We did a Fort Tomorrow episode. There's really at this point on the podcast, really no stone left unturned in the modern Superman era we've hit in some way, shape, or form. So we'll see about Chuck Austin. But anyway, we looked at that Gail Simone, John Byrne run, and then we also looked at the concurrent run on the Superman title by Mark Verheiden and Ed Bennis. And this was uh, after Steven Siegel, after For Tomorrow, and before Infinite Crisis. So side by side with Action Comics, we had this Verheiden-Bennis run on Superman from 217 through 225. I'll just kind of say now, I don't really have a lot to say about either of those two runs. I suppose one of my main, because they were so short, I I think one of my biggest takeaways was just, it reminded me, because it's been years now, it reminded me how much the lead up to Infinite Crisis dominated. I mean, especially that Superman run. Actually, the, the Gail Simone action run as well. There was a lot that tied into Villains United, but the Superman run in particular, I mean, it felt like so much table setting for Infinite Crisis. That was probably like my biggest takeaway from from reading those two runs. What about you? No, I had, I had kind of the similar idea. Um, you know, if I'm putting these three runs together and just kind of like thinking about within these three runs, where would I rank them? I'd probably put Simone's at the top. I mean, I... I'm I'm very biased. I love Gail Simone. She, she's one of my favorite creators. Um, and I'd probably put Siegel as number two, and then Verheiden would probably be number three then. His run just did not really impress me. And I've got a bit more... Uh, I give Siegel a little bit more leeway after reading It's a Bird, because I could kind of understand where he was coming from, how difficult it was for him to do. Although it was... Uh, the timing, when you asked me if we could put in the, the Simone and Verheiden runs, was pretty good, because I had actually just finished reading The Sacrifice Trade when you came to me and asked that. Oh, all right. <laughs> I'm glad that that worked. So, you know, we'll, we'll circle back to those couple of runs, and we'll share what we can on that. Like I said, I, I don't really have a ton. There was some good... There was some stuff I liked in there, but again, there's a reason why these aren't getting their own individual episodes. I'll, I'll put it that way. As far as Siegel's Superman run itself, so I don't want to dance around this. For people who are like, what what run are you guys talking about? As far as some of the hallmarks, I guess, if if there are any of this run, but the things that really things that really kind of stood out the most, I would say, you know, far and away, the introduction of this Sir L Supergirl character who 
you know, allegedly or initially is presented as the daughter of Superman and Lois Lane. Of course, we find out that's not the case by the end of this run. But for a time, she's floating around, you know, possibly the offspring of Lois and Clark. And again, this was a character who popped up in the other titles at the time. So even if you didn't read this run, you might be familiar with that. Uh, Our main antagonists are the future Smiths, who, again, are kind of in the background early on and then take a larger role as we move forward through the run, culminating in uh, issue 200, where we find out exactly what it's all about and what their plan has been all along. Spoiler alert, it's been Brainiac. It's Brainiac all along. And aside from that, there's a couple of issues where Superman is afflicted with this Kryptonian disease and his health is failing and his powers are out of whack. And we ultimately have uh, an unlikely an unlikely fix in the form of Bizarro, who's similarly suffering from this disease, but due to the you know backwards compatibility, they're able to reverse engineer a cure. Uh, there's a doctor who develops powers and initially runs amok, but then Superman's able to get through to him. He becomes Dr. Metropolis and becomes uh, a little bit of an ally later on. There's this coffee chain, yes, uh, that's on every corner, a la Starbucks. And you, you come to find uh, over the course of the issues that people are consuming this drink that contains these nanites that's making them more aggressive. Again, all ends up being part of Brainiac's plan. And this is also during that period of time where Clark Kent has been fired officially, publicly, from the Daily Planet at the end of the Jeff Loeb run, but is actually still working in secret in cahoots with Perry White to try to bring down Lex Luthor, which actually leads to what my favorite issue was uh, in this run where Clark is undercover at LexCorp. So... Was there anything else? And I rattled off a bunch of things. Was there anything else that like really jumped out to you as, oh, this was definitely, uh, you know, one of the one of the the tent poles or one of the things that really stood out to me from this run? Um, well, I think the the undercover stuff um, did stand out to me as well because we had talked about that in the when we had talked about the the Casey run and how we were kind of speculating well, whatever happened with that story. It kind of felt like it was just kind of dropped. And then we then I'm reading this run. I'm like, oh here's what happened to it. it. It all got resolved in this run here. So it was nice to see that, get that kind of closure uh, on that aspect. Um, I did note that, uh, uh, and when it was, uh, what was it? Ep- uh, issue 198, my note was Anthony's favorite character, Bizarro. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got a snuck a Bizarro appearance in there, but yes, the, that whole business with Clark being undercover because I've talked about this in various episodes where, you know, there was this great setup at the end of Loeb's run. And then if you follow Loeb's run on Superman into that public enemies arc of Superman, Batman, you know, at the end of that, of course, Lex goes crazy. He dons the war suit. He's ousted from the White House. And Clark's, you know, big return to the Daily Planet, writing the story of Lex's downfall, just it's, it's kind of like an afterthought. And so as much as I had read all of these other issues as a, as a kid 20 years ago, I didn't remember them. And so kind of going back now through the Casey run and through this one in particular, it's like, okay, good. They did follow up on this thread of Clark working undercover. And I'm very grateful for that. And in that one issue, we have this, uh, you know, elevator maintenance worker uh, at LexCorp who 
he's got blonde hair and he's kind of acting out and he's talking out against Superman, right? He's, he's bringing up a lot of these uh, kind of philosophical questions about the nature and existence of Superman to this coworker. It's like, doesn't this guy cause more problems than he, than he solves and all the property damage and blah, 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 like articulating what, you know, he's heard from other people about, about himself. And then the reveal midway through the issue is that this guy is actually Superman in disguise, trying to decipher the whereabouts of Lex's bodyguard, Hope, who is later found in, in prison and she's rescued. And, you know, we get this headline about, you know, whether Luther knew that she was there. I mean, I guess that in and of itself doesn't really go anywhere as far as I know, but it at least allowed Clark to you know, earn his credibility back, right? And and earn his spot once again on the Daily Planet, even though he's deme- demoted to the police beat. This issue was, um, it's funny you said it was your favorite issue of the run, because this was, it was, it was, for me, it was the weirdest issue of this run, because it just, I couldn't quite understand what Clark's reasoning was for doubling as C. Schultz in just this, you know, drawing a whole lot of attention to himself in these very odd ways. I don't disagree with you. What's funny too, though, was that it's not, I mean, at least I don't think it's so obvious as you're starting to read the issue, who this guy is. And again, so much time has passed. I didn't remember. And so we are kind of cutting back and forth between this maintenance worker and Lois uh, uncovering Clark's secret reporter lair. And she, and you know what, honestly, that was a surprise to me. I had forgotten that, Perry and Clark kept this from Lois, which that, that does not track for me. I don't buy like I don't buy that at all. <laughs> I had the exact same reaction to that. It felt very weird that you're not going to tell Lois about this. I mean, I can understand maybe Perry being nervous about, you know, telling her about it and maybe him and maybe Clark lying to Perry and saying that he's not telling Lois. But I can't picture Clark at this stage in their relationship keeping something that big of a secret from his wife. It seems like it seems like a bit of a reach for their characters, I think. Yep, I agree with that. And but I will say I was it, you know, it took me a few pages and then I realized I was like, "Oh, we haven't seen Clark yet. Oh, he's the guy." And but I thought it was it was a, a cool it was a cool reveal, but I I don't disagree with you. I think when you look at again, I think it's a little hard and I think ultimately this is uh shortcoming of the run where I don't know that you can really look at this and, you know, it's, it's not a particularly well-defined run. It's like, you know, you look at what came after with Superman for tomorrow and love it or hate it. It was going for something, right? Like it had a specific point of view and a story that it was telling. And this, this wasn't quite that, but to whatever extent this run does have an identity, this Clark undercover issue really feels like an outlier right? Like a lot of the rest of it dealing with the future Smiths and this other Supergirl and the yes drink and the disease, like that all kind of feels more in keeping with the run as a whole. The Clark undercover bit, but I like it. It was, it was a fun one and it paid off on that, that thread that I really like. But yeah, that one really felt like, okay. I I mean, I don't know if that was, you know, that might've been more of like an editorially mandated thing. Like, Hey, we set this up. We need an issue from you on, on Clark undercover. I mean, I have no, I don't know. I have no idea. No, I think that the whole Clark undercover bit, it felt very much like, um, hey, we've got this this storyline that's still dangling out there. Can you can you can you tie up tie up this thread? Um, and also makes me wonder, like, 
how much Siegel knew about how long his run was going to be. Because like you said, this was sandwiched between uh, the Loeb stuff and then the, the For Tomorrow. And I have to imagine that they knew Azarello and Lee were going to be coming up next after this. So I, it does feel like this was just kind of like, let's let's bring on somebody to do a, to do a fill-in run and just kind of tie up any loose ends so that then we've got all the pieces in place for when Azarello and Lee come in. Yep, definitely could be. Uh, I want to go to a couple of questions from one of our patrons, Brian, on these works by Siegel. So he started by saying, I don't have <laughs> here. And this is really becoming a theme here. Brian says, I don't have strong or particularly fond memories of this run. I know the graphic novel is where I first heard of Huntington's disease before a story arc in the television show Everwood, which side note. I love Everwood. Have you ever seen the show? No, I, I've I've heard of it, and I've heard you know people talking about it before, but it was it was never really on my radar. Um, Cameron, was that a was that a WB thing? Oh, classic glory days of the WB. It ran for four seasons. It featured a very young. I mean, this was one of their earliest roles. Uh, very very young. Uh, Chris Pratt and Emily Van Camp, who of course would go on to MCU stardom, but it was Treat Williams as this. Uh, as this New York City surgeon who neglects his family and then his wife dies and he moves his family to this small town, Everwood, Colorado, to try to reconnect with them, in particular his uh, sullen teenage son. And it was, I am long overdue for a rewatch and my wife hasn't seen it, so we'll, we'll get there and I think it'll, it'll, it'll be enjoyable. But I have immensely fond memories of that. So anyway, I just, that was it's part of Brian's question. It's Williams, like, I, I know... Treat Williams, I just know him from like the the B action movies he did in, in the nineties. Yeah, no, I mean this is him in you know family man mode. Oh, it's such a good show. And anyway, so that's kind of the setup. And then what Brian says is, I think this is the first and maybe last time I encountered a writer saying he didn't want to write Superman. You know, yet went on to this run, and they dropped the ten cent adventure in an effort to promote it. Uh, what do you think they were hoping to accomplish with that 10 cent uh, adventure? I mean, this was, I feel like there, there was a moment during this period of time in the early two thousands, we had fantastic Four, the nine cent issue that launched the Mark Wade, Mike Ringo run. And then I forget which came first. I feel like it was Batman, the 10 cent adventure, which kicked off the Bruce Wayne murderer storyline. Yeah, that definitely came first. I remember that one because that, because this run came out at a time when I was, um, kind of pulling away from comics just because of, of money and everything. And, um, and, but I was still very much reading stuff hardcore when, um, uh, Bruce Wayne murderer came out. So that one was definitely before this by, by a number of years, actually, I think, cause I think this run came out when I was in university and the Bruce Wayne murderer stuff, I believe came out when I was still in high school. Gotcha. So, I mean, I think as far as the, the 10 cent issue kickoff, as far as that piece of it, I think it was, just this this promotional you know kick that was kind of going on at the time. I mean, I have to say, and I remember this time fondly because I had never read Fantastic Four before. My Marvel reading, really, at that point in particular, was really essentially just confined to Spider Man and Daredevil. I had never read Fantastic Four, but when Wade and Waringo did that nine cent issue. Like you, you know, you can't like, why would you miss that? So why would you? Yeah, exactly. So that got me into it. And, and I mean, I remember, you know, again, certainly I guess, yeah, at this point I was, 
by the time Batman won and the Super, even the Fantastic, I guess all of them, you know, I was working at my local comic shop and I remember, you know, the, the flood of copies that we got. And I'm pretty sure we still charged people the nine cents or 10 cents. But I think, there, you know, there were plenty of stores that probably just like threw it in everyone's bag, right? Just as kind of like, hey, maybe you like this and add it to your pull list. So I do think there's a lot of value in it. And I like it worked on me, you know, not for Superman and Batman. I was already getting all those books, but for Fantastic Four like that. That made the difference for me. Although, I mean, I don't know. With that creative team, I, I don't know. I might have tried it otherwise, but this just made it a no-brainer. Yeah, I was the same thing because I, you know, I, I dug Mark Wade already. Um, so I was never. I, I'm much more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, especially back in those days. But I was never really an FF guy. Like Fantastic Four just never really appealed to me in the same way, like Spider-Man or X-Men or the Avengers or Daredevil. Um, so when it came to the Fantastic Four stuff, like I've read some, like some of it, but it. Just Mark Wade alone probably would not have gotten me to pick up that issue, but because it was that nine cents, I'm like, okay, well, like you said, for nine cents, why would I not pick it up? I remember I bought probably 10 copies of each of these, but, and it's like, in retrospect, it's like, why? Well, like, <laughs> I guess it was still more of that collector mentality. I mean, the better thing to do would have been to bring those extra copies to kids at my school who had never mm -hmm. read comics and be like, hey, why don't you guys check this out? But I don't know that that even necessarily dawned on me but in any event. And I think I think this might have actually been a precursor to uh, Free Comic Book Day, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, yeah, you know, you're right. It definitely has that that feel to it, for sure. So thank you, Brian, for the question. And thank you to all patrons for supporting this. If you want to become a patron, it's patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. There are... Uh, regular monthly plans, discounted annual subscriptions, there's free trials. Uh, so please check it out. It enables me to cover all of the costs associated with maintaining these podcasts. So it really is a huge help. And there's a variety of rewards to choose from. And in particular, at the $1 level and up, we have Digging for Justice, which is the DC movie rewatch podcast. And as far as, you know, like little side projects go, it has been tremendous fun going through all of the non-Superman DC movies. So uh, for anyone who is interested in checking that out, I would definitely encourage it. And I thank all patrons, you know, past and present. I really do appreciate it. So I kind of want to go back to Brian's question. And then I think that's a great launching point to kind of circle back to the original graphic novel, It's a Bird, because, you know, to Brian's point, right? Like so much of It's a Bird is how Siegel doesn't want to write Superman. <laughs> and then of course he goes on to write this run. So I mean, I guess just overall impressions of the the graphic novel. I mean, what 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 was your reaction to it? Did you like it? Did you think that the questions it brought up, especially with respect to Superman, were were, were meaningful? Where where did you land on this? For the most part, I liked it. I mean, being a writer myself, I could really relate a lot to um, the kinds of stuff that that he was dealing with. I did think that the the main character, the the Steve, uh, who's a stand-in for Siegel. Um, which you know he says in the in the credits that it's um it there's some similarities between us. I think there were times when he got on my, he graded on me, but for the most part I thought it was it was an interesting exercise because I could also relate to it a lot. Um like unlike Siegel, I you know am a Superman fan, but I've had my writing Superman is a difficult thing. Like I back when I was in high school and university, I used to write fan fiction. And I did write some Superman stuff for like a few different uh, websites and it's tough. It's, it's really tough to kind of um, to tackle that character. I mean, he, 
first off, there's the question of what do you do that hasn't already been done uh, more more than once. And then there's also the question of how do you write these stories about this character who is basically un you know you know invincible, but has these very human aspects. How do you find ways to challenge him and that that are creative, that are interesting to the reader? but still give you um, still stay true to that character. It's a really hard thing to do. I mean, I think one of the reasons why we keep getting so many Superman origin stories is because the origin story is the easiest Superman story to tell. Yes. And I think to the extent that the, that the book, you know, addresses just that, that difficulty, that inherent difficulty in tackling the character, you know, I can certainly appreciate it. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it's a bird overall. I mean, what I, Maybe surprisingly, I mean, what I what I found more compelling, more interesting was the this medical secret issue that his family has been contending with, and again, the fact that his grandmother had died from Huntington's, and you know, it wasn't something that was talked about in his family, but through his own research and talking to his doctor, right, he knew that it's genetic. He knew that there's no treatment or cure, so it's essentially a death sentence, and again, if it runs in the family, that risk is, is so much greater. And again, you certainly get the insight into, uh, you know, the, the tension between him and his parents and between his parents, a a large part of this book is, uh, his father has gone missing, uh, has, has left, hasn't left his mom, but has left the house and they don't know where he is. And we ultimately find that he's visiting, uh, Steve's aunt, the father's sister, who is suffering from uh, from Huntington's. There was this hope that it had skipped a generation, but now we find out that it hadn't. So, and and then on top of this, you have Stephen navigating a relationship with his girlfriend, and you know, conversations about the future and children kind of hit a brick wall with him. And this isn't something that he talks about, but this is again a fear that he has about potentially passing this on. But it, it goes. Uh, you know, un- unspoken about, and that creates tension. So all of that, I, I really, I, I found pretty compelling. The Superman piece of it, okay. I had, I, I think, kind of two, there were aspects of it that I really did like, but there were two big problems that I had with it. One of them was people would kill for the opportunity to write Superman. And to read a whole book about someone who's so put upon because oh, they want me to write Superman and I don't like Superman. It's just kind of like, okay, <laughs> just like slow your roll. I don't know. You know, I don't know how much sympathy I really, I really feel. So there was a little bit of that that just kind of like rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. And then the other piece, and that's why I'm glad we kind of started by talking a bit about his run on the Superman title because and again, I really I don't want to sound like a jerk with this, but if we got through this whole graphic novel about how he learns to love Superman or at least appreciate Superman to the point where he's willing to take on this project, and then we read this great run on Superman, it's like, oh my God, this was a guy, he didn't even want to take this job, but he came around, he learned how to access the character. He learned why, you know, these the origin and the costume and the kryptonite, it's not silly, it's not a contrivance. There's value in this, and look at this amazing run that we remember fondly and we remember specifically. <laughs> but instead, we, we got what we got, which is readable 
and certainly fine. It's, if someone said, hey, I'm going to track down that seagull, Ron, I'd be like, all right, right on. I hope you enjoy. I wouldn't try to talk them out of it. But at the same time, mm. if someone said to me, hey, how there's no trade of this. I can't get it digitally. Like, do you think I should go to a convention and make it my weekend mission to try to track down these issues? I'd probably say there might be other things that you can do with yourself. So that was that was no. kind of the downside of reading these two together where it's like you kind of, all right, you so you see what comes out the other end and it's like, it's fine, it's fine. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On to Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. As the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material, mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. You really kind of hit on what my expectation of this was going in because, again, I. I had some familiarity with Siegel before. I know he's a good writer. He's written stuff I've really enjoyed. Um, he wasn't the best Alpha Flight or X-Men writer, but his stuff was entertaining enough. Uh, even comparing him to what Joe Kelly was doing on that book, too. what His his stuff wasn't as good as Kelly's, but again, very enjoyable. Uh, it was certainly better than what came after for a good long while, actually, too. And so when I read this this book and we get to the end of it and he's and I'm like, I was so pumped to then go on and to read his, his Superman run. Cause I'm like, okay, he's, he's figured out what works about this character. He's found a way to access him. Now, we're, now bring on the amazing run. I'm just like, after 12 issues, I'm just kind of like that. That's it. I mean, it, it's no Chuck Austin, but it's, it was certainly, you know, nothing to write home about. Yeah. I, you know, so I think we're, you know, <laughs> kind of came to similar places on that throughout it's a bird. And this, I thought the, this device was very effective and interesting. And I think speaks to what Scott had mentioned. I'll read Scott's statements in a moment, but uh, about kind of how this illuminates the writer's process. And so throughout this issue, I mean, yes, we're following our main narrative of Stephen trying to decide whether to take this job and then also dealing with this family strife. But throughout the book, periodically, we have these interludes, so to speak, where he's working out these various ideas and questions 
and problems that he per perceives with respect to Superman. And so you get these like little vignettes and Teddy Christensen, man, I love the art throughout and the fact that he's utilizing these distinct styles each time we're in one of these uh, little Superman-centric vignettes. It's great. And so you see Siegel working out some of the problems that he has with Superman. So for example, I had mentioned Kryptonite before. You know, there's a two or three page spot uh, all about Kryptonite and, and essentially kind of how, or at least my reading of it was, Kryptonite can be, uh, you know, kind of a, a lazy device, a crutch for writers, this contrivance, the fact that it made its way all the way to Earth and didn't burn up upon reentry and, and, and things like that. So again, kind of pointing to one of the things that Siegel, you know, doesn't like about the character or, or sees as a problem. There's another one about this whole idea of power, right? And his conclusion uh, after that piece was that Superman's a fascist, right? Because he goes through mm -hmm. all of these examples of people, groups, countries throughout history who have used and abused their power to achieve what they want. And so, you know, you have, you know, the caveman, you know, taking the cave woman, you have, you know, Genghis Khan conquering. And then, you know, we go through a few different iterations of that and it's Superman kind of putting a criminal in a headlock and kind of equating Superman uh, with some of these other examples. So like, that's the kind of stuff that he's working out. Well, I mean, what was your take on these? And were there others in particular that like really stood out to you and that either you liked so or didn't? Yeah, the one that stood out to me was I, I wrote down about the, the colors uh, of the Superman costume, right? I, I thought that was a really cool thing, the way he um, the way he kind of worked out why these colors, why these colors in in this um, in this configuration, right? Why not all red and yellow and a little bit of blue? Why not all red? And it's just, you know, this whole idea of uh, because there's chromatic alchemy at work i thought that was a nice word that he says that he uses there right red's the color of war um red uh red, red planet of mars it's a masculine color um red hope but it also symbolizes strength and youth and but you don't want to have it be like too overpowering so like all these different ideas of like why these colors why these colors work together i thought was pretty cool um the other thing too was the idea about uh and the kryptonite thing was an interesting um I'm not sure sure if this is what he was going for but I think that that's an interesting symbolism of of kryptonite the fact that it's it's his home planet and it's deadly to him right the the thing it kind of drawing that connection between you know why superman belongs on earth as opposed to being a child of you know he's from krypton originally but he's he's more of a child of earth um, I thought that was a uh, just something that popped in my head as I was reading over that, but also I like this um, this whole idea about leaving home to start over somewhere else. I could really relate to that, or or also the idea of Clark being an outsider. Like that's that's one of the things that I that I like about the Clark Kent character because I think that when you embrace that outsider aspect of him, that's something I really relate to because. You know, me, when I was in, in school, I was always kind of an outsider myself. So that was something I really connected to with, with that character. Um, so those are probably the big things I noticed. And there's this one line, I'm not sure exactly where it was, because it's, you know, it's been like a month now since I read this, but I did write down this line. There is nothing so terrifying as having one's hidden self seen. I thought that was a great line. And, um, and I made sure to make a note of it. Yes. I, well, you know, it's interesting because that outsider one, that stood out to me too, but I think... I think I read it that one differently and you may be totally right in terms of what he intended me, but I think I was, 
you know, again, so much of this seemed to be couched in terms of what his criticisms of the character were. And that, that one came early. So my, like my reading of that one was that, cause he gives other examples of, you know, kind of outsiders trying to blend in, like, you know, uh, an administrative assistant who's gay and doesn't want people to know, or, uh, you know, the janitor who's, who's sort of overlooked you know, and, and he's a person of color, things like that. And I, my take on it was that Superman, I, I guess as Clark, for lack of a better description, like blends in more easily. Like these other people are the real outsiders who are struggling and like that it didn't, it, it, to me, I read it more as like a condemnation of the secret identity as opposed to something that Siegel was finding of value. I'd have to go back and read it again, but that no, was- no, no, I agree with you. You, you were absolutely right. I, I, uh, that's just how I interpret <laughs> that, that secret identity side of it. And I think that's, that was kind of, it was a nice insight because it shows that just along, along the same lines of the whole Superman is a fascist thing. It's, it's a total misreading of that character. And I think, I think you're absolutely right that Siegel did misread that aspect of that character. I mean, that, that story he tells about that kid, Jason Dobson, that was heartbreaking. <laughs> I mean, I was that kid. So I, I, I totally related to that. Right. Yeah. That was the one with the, with the, with the Superman costume, right? Like he's, right. he, he, yeah, he yeah. doesn't fit in except on Halloween where he wears a Superman costume and sort of everyone now gravitates to him and he can be himself. And then he tries wearing the costume another day. Right. And it's totally not well received. Right. Yeah. And I can relate to that, right? I mean, I'm wearing a Batman shirt now, but like when I was in in high school, I would never wear these shirts <laughs> in school. No, I hear you. I so I think I think this was the other thing that I sort of bumped up against a little bit with "It's a Bird," which is for for us Superman fans, and especially those of us in the, like the Superman podcast community, we've had a lot of these conversations we're well aware of the problems that some people have with the character, things that they don't like, that they don't get, that they think don't work. And I guess I'm over that at this point. I I guess that's kind of where I've landed. Like I understand why some people just don't get Superman and I don't feel the same way. And I think that there maybe are certain ways to look at the character or or certain stories to look at that might change that person's mind. But at the same time, I don't even like, I'm at this point, like I I don't think I would ever really necessarily like get into an argument or a debate with someone about it. Cause it's like, I know what the character means to me and I know what value is there. And if someone doesn't see that, that's fine. Like enjoy something else. But so I guess this whole kind of process of him going through all of these arguments like against Superman. Like, I, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily the audience for this. Like, I feel like this story mm-hmm. might work a lot better for someone who, who maybe is not as keen on Superman and, and maybe by the end of it would kind of come around like, like Siegel himself did. I mean, I don't know, but for me reading, it's like, a, I don't need to be convinced. And again, none of this is a failing of the story. Like I, you know, it's a personal story and this is what he was telling. I, I get that. But as far as like what resonates with me, it's like, I don't, I don't need to be convinced. And I'm also kind of over these arguments against the character. So like, I, I didn't get a ton of mileage out of that, I suppose. I, I totally get where you're coming from. I'm, I'm somewhere between you because you've been, you know, a stalwart Superman fan since you were, since you were a kid, you never had that kind of like wavering, um, that I had, that I went through because I, so I, I'm kind of like that halfway point where I, I went through, like, I think maybe a lot of people 
were, were like me, I think, where when you get into your teenage years or something, you think, man, Superman's so lame, Batman's so cool, or you know that kind of stuff. Um, or when you go through the, the 90s extreme hero phase and all that. Um, and then when I got older, and you know, I credit Bernie a lot to this because he kind of reintroduced me to Superman in a lot of ways. And then just kind of like, no, actually, yes, yeah, Superman, Superman's actually pretty cool. Um, so I can kind of see those arguments because I had those arguments at one point myself. And uh, so th- that's kind of the approach I come f- to this. And it's, but for the most part, I do agree with you. I think at this point in my fandom, I just, I don't have time to convince you if you don't like Superman. You don't like Superman, you don't like Superman, fine. <laughs> but I'm not gonna, I, I got other, I got other crap to do, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. But look, I appreciate this for what it is. And look, it came out almost 20 years ago. So, you know, we've had, there's been so many more meditations on Superman in various forms since then. So I, you know, I can appreciate this for what it was and the time and all that, you know, I'll have to, I'll say this, the thing that resonated with me the most reading this, and it was, it was, you know, heartbreaking I've talked endlessly about how I got into Super uh, Superman with the death of Superman at age five, age five, the same age that Siegel was when his grandmother passed and his dad gave him that Superman comic to read in the waiting room of the hospital. And unlike the moment that I had outside Heroes World with the death of Superman that set me on this wonderful journey for for him, it did not have that effect, right? And he talks about it in It's a Bird. You know, he and his brother did not become comic book fans. Siegel himself, you know, retreated more into the world of of, of books, of prose novels as mm-hmm. opposed to comic books. And it seems like in part, the fact that his parents were encouraging him to read comics made them less less desirable, which I can understand that. But I would also have to imagine that the fact that they were associated with this traumatic moment in his life. And, you know, there's this conversation that he seems to only hear a little bit of a piece of between his father and his aunt, uh, when they're in the, you know, outside in the the waiting room of the hospital. And, you know, what we find out later on is he, you know, he, he did hear what they were talking about and it was the father confronting the aunt about like, how long did you know that mom had this Huntington's disease? And it's like, how long did you know? Because essentially we would not have had kids because we would be concerned about passing this on to them. And, you know, that leads, of course, uh, in the in the present day storyline to major catharsis between Stephen and his father. And, uh, you know, Stephen articulating this idea that I'm grateful for the life that I've had and what I've done. And it's like, even if, even if it ends with Huntington's, I still am glad that I was here. Right. So, you know, we have that major emotional breakthrough and all that. But the fact that his first Superman comic, his introduction to the character was outside that hospital room, you know, in the waiting area as his grandmother was dying and his, and his family members were arguing again, it's a far cry from that magical Christmas time moment that I had in, in, in the mall where I met the character. So, you know, I look at someone who met the character at the same age, but went down a different path. And, and that was what more than anything kind of spoke to me. I, I really, that, that's what I was kind of grabbing onto. That, yeah, that was a really interesting thing too. I, I thought the idea that him and his brother ended up hating comics because uh, their parents were encouraging them to read comics. I thought that was kind of funny. And uh, cause I had kind of the opposite thing. My parents tried to discourage me from reading comics and that only made me want to read them more. So I kind of, uh, I could kind of understand where he was coming from uh, with that. And what stood out to me was the, um, 
the, the struggle with the decision about whether or not to have kids. So I can see a lot of myself in some aspects uh, of Steven in this, like, cause I struggled with that decision myself. Like, you know, um, do I want to have kids? Do I want to bring, cause I, I taught in elementary school for like six years. I, I know, I, I remember what it was like dealing with kids. I'm just like, and even now I don't really like being around other kids, but like my own kids, I love them. So it's, that was something I'd struggled with. And also that idea of, you know, bringing children into, into this kind of world and all that kind of stuff that people always talk about. Those are things that I, that I worried about. Um, so I, and just like the whole writing side of thing is what really kind of drew me the most and what allowed me to, to tune into to Steven's character. Um, but at the same time, like, it's just, this guy's so full of himself at several points, like going back to, to something you said about the whole thing about him. Um, you know, you get offered the chance to write the most popular, the most famous comic book character in the world. I mean, arguably Batman two is maybe second or, or, or first, depending on, you know, but I think it, it's definitely Superman and Batman, the most popular characters the most well-known characters in comic book history, in superhero history, it's these two guys. These are like the, you know, the Hercules and Hades of modern myth. And you, I don't care what country you go into, you say Superman, they're going to know who you're talking about. You say Batman, they're going to know who you're talking about. And then DC Comics comes to you and they say, we're going to give you money to write stories about this character. I don't care if you don't like Superman. You don't say no to that. <laughs> it doesn't matter how hard it is to tune into the character. You find a way to do that, to put your stamp. Because that is something that, well, maybe not go into the history books, because like we said, this run isn't really remembered anywhere. But but you get to put your stamp on what on one of the, the most well-known, long-lived characters in literature. And you're not going to take that chance. I mean, I, that's, that is baffling to me. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know that was a little tough to reconcile, and and again, I you know I don't I don't say this, you know, to to be mean in any way, shape, or form. But it's like you know, yeah, I mean, I think there are certain certain comic book writers who have achieved a certain stature in the industry, you know, then or now, who it's like they you know they wouldn't like they might be offered it, but it's just not something that they're interested in. But I mean, I'm talking about like you know, the legends of the field, like the top, uh-huh. you know, and, and again, not, not to be mean, but it's like, especially where Siegel was at this point. It's, I mean, I don't know. It's like, it, it just, I don't know. Like I said, it was just kind of tough to reconcile that this would be, so, I mean, I'll look on the other hand, I, I, I do get it. And I mean, if you're, because, and, and again, it's not, you know, we recognize, right. You're not just like banging these out. It's like, no, no, no. There's a lot that goes into constructing these stories and you're living with the mm-hmm. characters and these scripts for, you know, it ended up being a year long run. So Look, I mean, I can certainly appreciate the notion of, well, I don't want to take this on if I don't have something to contribute, you know, yeah. especially because of what, you know, investment I would be making of my time and my my effort and my energy, even though I am being paid for it. So it's like, I, I can respect and understand that, but it just, again, for all the reasons that we talked about, that was a little bit of a, a tough pill to swallow. And that so much of the story revolves around, it's like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do it. It's like, all right. But you know, in any event, I will say one other, one of those other interludes that I really did like, uh, I'm glad you mentioned about the colors. That was, that was a really interesting one. And then there's also one about the S, about the S can mm-hmm. possess and the S can make things plural. And, you know, there's sort of this whole dissertation on the letter S and the alphabet and the things that can be done with it uh, in the language. And, uh, you know, I, 
like that was an interesting bit too. Here's the question that I want to ask. I think I, I think we know what our what our answer is, but it's still worth asking, and maybe something will come up. There are interesting ideas that Siegel explores in this, the ones that we've already talked about. Oh, there's also that scene at Coney Island or whatever, where he's talking with the fellow comic writer, Joe Allen, that, that meant to be Joe Kelly. You know, I was wondering, cause he, you know, he's friends with both Kelly and Casey. Both of them did the Superman books. Both of them are huge Superman fans, especially Casey, right? Talked a lot about how, how important it was for him to be able to get the chance to write Superman. So I, my first thought was, Oh, it's gotta be Joe Kelly. But then I thought again, I'm like, well, maybe it could be Joe Casey too. So it could be an amalgamation of the two actually as well. That's, you know what, that's probably most likely, but you know, there's this whole scene where they have this discussion about Superman, uh, you know, down at, at the boardwalk and, you know, Siegel is kind of spouting what villains in Superman comics often say. And, and Joe, uh, in that story calls him out on that because, you know, uh, Steven's talking about how, you know, he, he doesn't show us what we can accomplish because we don't have powers, you know, that, that, that whole argument. Uh, you know, so that's another instance of some of these ideas that Siegel's wrestling with. My question is, we have all these interesting ideas that clearly Siegel was thinking about as he was deciding whether or not to do this. Did you feel, reading the run that we got, that any of that kind of carried over? Like, did in the actual run, did you see any of those ideas at play? Not at all. Not at all. And that was one of the reasons why I was so disappointed in that run, because you know, like you said, these are really interesting ideas, right? The idea of Clark Kent as an outsider and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the things that he's having these villains say the whole idea, the the closest thing we get is in the 10 cent adventure. When that, um, that villain, uh, calls, um, uh, calls Superman, a primary colored dictator. That's like it. That's it. <laughs> and other than that, I don't, I don't see how these ideas influenced the story that he ended up telling. I agree. And I think that fed into what, you know, kind of the ultimate disappointment was, especially in looking at these two things together. I mean, yeah, there's that that line that you mentioned. And then also in that Tencent adventure, that villain Amok is spouting, again, some of these ideas about, you know, I guess Superman being this, you know, alien interloper and you know, causing mm-hmm. more problems than he saw. Like that's that sort of idea. There's, I think it's a subsequent issue where one of the one of the worker drones in Metropolis goes rogue and tries to kill, uh, you know, the the father of the person who will ultimately in, enslave humanity down, down the line. And, mm. you know, there's this, you know, Superman's overhearing the citizens of Metropolis talking about some of the property damage that he causes. So, like, there, you know, Siegel does at least touch on these things, but I don't feel like we ever go anywhere with it. No, I think, and I think those... Those ideas would have been a lot more interesting. Like when they mentioned the thing about the property damage, I'm like, this would be something cool to explore because especially, um, I mean, this came out before, but in light of the the Man of Steel debate, right, about all the the property damage and all that, I mean, that's that's a very good idea to explore in a, in a Superman comic book. And I think the fact that we didn't get that was um, was a real disappointment. Although I will say one of my favorite lines from the Ten Cent Adventure was when Amuck tells Superman about the fact, like, we fought before. He's like, it was a battle for the ages. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was good. I, I liked that. Um, I liked, you know, the idea of this Supergirl who could be their offspring it is, is interesting. I did, I hated Lois's reaction. I realized then that she was, 
I guess that was an early instance of her being influenced by those nanites and the yes drinks that en- en- enhance aggression. But, you know, she was just, she just instantly goes into, you know, confront Clark mode, right? And the second mm-hmm. she sees him, she's like, who, who was she? Was it Wonder Woman? Like, and she go, and it just like, even, even then factoring in that, okay, she was under some sort of influence. It still just felt so, I, you know what? It felt like a missed opportunity, right? Because maybe that could have been an interesting conversation, you know, in an unaltered state, you know, because that would, I mean, but but it was just like the idea that there's no benefit of the doubt afforded Clark, like she just launches into this. Again, even factoring in other forces at play, it just, I don't know, man, it just didn't, it didn't play for me. I feel like Lois really gets, um, doesn't get the best treatment in this run. No. To, to, to put it mildly. I mean, that, that jumped out to me too. Her reaction seemed very extreme given what they've been through, given the kinds of lives they lead, even adding for the fact that, okay, she's being influenced by these nanites. I think there's a better way to, to work in some hints that there's something going on here with Lois. But as it stands, like you read that issue, she just seemed, it just seems like forced drama more than anything else. Uh, I know a thousand percent. So, you know, that was tough. And, you know, I mentioned before how this all ends up being a brainiac story. So the, the ultimate revelation here, and hopefully I tracked all of this correctly. You tell me if you had a different interpretation, but so essentially brainiac is the future Smiths or has created the future Smiths. And, is trying to engineer this scenario through the nanites and these yes drinks where people, in order to save humanity, we have to replace their tissue with this biosynthetic material that Brainiac can then use in the future to create his Brainiac 12 form. And so he's, via the future Smiths, uh, tinkering with the past, introducing this CRL character and having a muck steal a strand of Superman's hair to create CRL or, or adjust her DNA mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on in order to engineer these events that will provide him the raw material to come into being in the future. That was my take. No, I, I had pretty much the same take and it was just the, the, the biggest problem I had with, with following that whole thread is just that it's, First off, it's not really. It wasn't really that executed well. I don't think it just didn't seem very interesting um, in the long run. And and I thought there's, especially given the ideas that we we get teased with in It's a Bird, it it ended up being very disappointing that at the end of the day we're just getting this this story about Brainiac trying to manipulate the past. It was kind of a letdown, actually. I agree. I agree. And I, you know, it's funny. I was trying to remember my experience reading this the first time. And I feel like I might have let these pile up and then read them all the way through and got to the end of 200 and was like, all right. And and that's probably why, Mm -hmm. like, I never really went back to them and I never, you know, really had even that much of a memory of it. That's kind of my recollection was letting them pile up, which in and of itself kind of speaks to how I was feeling about it at the time. So again, this wasn't a run that I had spent a lot of time with. You know, what I was surprised, I totally had forgotten this, Siegel's run ends, issue 200 ends on a, on a cliffhanger, essentially, where Superman's missing, right? Mm-hmm. There's all these shenanigans in the timeline, and he drops, you know, he strands Brainiac in this, you know, kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like a like a lost or forgotten moment, like a vacuum in time, something like that. Right, yeah, something like that. 
and and then Superman himself is missing. And we do also get at the beginning of the issue, we get uh, the departure from Krypton kind of playing out in different forms. We get sort of the Silver Age iteration, the John Byrne iteration, and then the Birthright iteration, which, you know, it's I always lament the fact that the Birthright origin never never really, you know, stuck because we so quickly mm-hmm. after got Secret Origin. But there were, you know, I'm reminded now, this is one example, as well as the Supergirl arc in Superman, Batman. I think when we see some depictions of Krypton, it's the birthright design. So there was, it's like this sliver, this like tiny window between birthright, which again, like 2003, 2004, and then, you know, <clears throat> Infinite Crisis, Secret Origin, 2006-ish, where it's like, mm-hmm. it was referenced, like it was there. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, then it was quickly... Uh, you know, supplanted, but there, th- I did appreciate that. But yeah, it ends with Superman lost. Yeah, I um, so I didn't read ahead, so I didn't look at see what, what came up at two hundred one. Did you look ahead see what what came up next? Yeah, so a couple of things clicked into place. So immediately after this, they did a month. I think it was just a month. A crossover between uh, the three titles, action adventures, and and Superman. It was an Abnett Landing uh, uh, team up. Uh, those the co-writers and it was with majestic so it's like superman is still missing and then mr majestic comes to metropolis oh i remember this happening now and then from that see it all ties together we had done an episode a long time ago with with v ken marion on the godfall arc where superman has lost his memories and he's living this life in candor and that's where he ends up after he's after he's kind of lost so that's what comes after that which oh also quick side note when we did our King of the World uh, discussion uh, a few episodes ago, I talked about how, you know, Candor, you know, this post-crisis version of Candor, not the Kryptonian city, but this collection of different alien species, uh, you know, it's in the fortress, but the fortress gets destroyed. And then there's this one issue where Superman, like, makes, like, this throwaway line of, like, oh, hopefully their dimensional barrier held up. And it's like, wait, what happened to Candor? So one of our audience members, Tim Bruns, he reminded me, and we've covered these issues, but, you know, I've forgotten, uh, but he reminded me in the Loeb run, there's that Christmas issue, I think, where Lois and Clark, like, vacation in Candor. So it it survives. I mean, I still don't know if there's a, a, a clear, explicit instance where they, like, show that it survived or explain anything, but it did. And then, of course, the Godfall arc. So Candor was still mm. in play. So that still was a very throwaway line. I don't think they really gave it the treatment it deserves, but uh, at least we had some follow-ups. So thank you, audience. <laughs> so that explains something too, because I was I had read Godfall in isolation, right? So I hadn't read it in connected. So, I mean, I wasn't sure, is this an Elseworlds or, or what is this? How, so now this makes sense about like how that all that came to be. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh the other thing, the one of the things I did like this scene where he's hanging out with the Flash too, and I thought that was a that was a fun moment. And I would have liked to see more stuff like this because I think uh, Siegel did a pretty good job with with writing about that relationship and that idea of, you know, Superman says you don't see me as a god, do you? And he's like, well, yeah, I do, but not in the bad way. <laughs> and I think that's a that's an interesting idea to play with, like the way that other people view Superman. And it reminds me of that um, that Loeb issue of Superman Batman when. Uh, Batman's narration says something along, and I'm going completely off memory here, but he says something along the lines of like, you know, Superman doesn't want us to see him as a God, but then he shoots fire from his, from the sky and we can't help but think of him as a God. And it's like, fortunately for us, he doesn't see that. Yes. From memory, that was, I think almost word for word. I I remember that moment (laughs) and yeah, 
No, uh, spot on. No, yeah, that was no. That's the thing. Look I, again. I know we're not so not so hot on this run, but there's some good like there's good stuff in there. And like I said, it is a readable run. I mean, I don't want to paint this mm. as something that's like, oh my god, what a what a chore to get through. It reads and they they go pretty quickly. Which every time I say, <laughs> I say that, I know, like, I know that that's that much of a compliment. It's come up a few times with different things where it's like you get through it real fast. At least there's that. And also, we haven't mentioned, I don't think, but the artist on all of these issues was Scott McDaniel, mm-hmm. who, you know, I loved his work on Nightwing and Batman. I, I, let me say this. I appreciated the consistency. He did all of these issues and, and he's, mm-hmm. you know, typically one of the most reliable and hits deadlines and all that stuff. And, you know, it, it definitely feels more cohesive having the same artist doing all of them. I tend to prefer him more in the Bat world. I mean, how did you think his style mm-hmm lent itself to to the superman uh, in this instance i mean honestly i thought the art was probably my favorite part of, of reading these issues um because i thought uh i get i get your point i get that he is yeah i i more associate him with the batman stuff too especially especially nightwing that that was how i got introduced to him uh basically but um i thought he was a good fit for for um for these issues i liked the way he he drew superman i liked the the, the kind of panel layouts and everything. So, so yeah, I dug the art. Um, I did also, I thought the art in, um, you, you talked about it a few times in it's a bird was gorgeous to look at and like the perfect type of illustration for, for the story. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very, very visually striking. Oh, let me, before I be remiss, if I, if I don't get to uh, what Scott had sent me, uh, sharing his take on this, uh, again, I think, uh, you know, as a fellow educator, uh, you know, you'll probably identify with this. So Scott talked about actually buying a copy of this from Steven Siegel at New York Comic-Con a while back and got Teddy Christensen to sign it. Uh, so that's cool that he got to meet those guys. So Scott says, I inserted it into my 10th grade English curriculum for a few reasons. One, it speaks to the writer's process, which I try to emphasize to my students. Writing is about process, not product. Second, the book is a really good introduction to the character of Superman and those interludes. Siegel explores all the different ways one might approach a Superman story, ultimately deciding that none is the right one for him. Each one reinforces just how difficult constructing a good Superman story is, which makes the fact that we've had so many of them over the last 85 years all the more impressive. Finally, the stru- structurally, the book features several conflicts that end up uh, interacting as the story grows in intensity. The central conflict, that of Steve's professional struggle to come up with a solid idea for writing Superman, provides the framework to also deal with his other emerging conflicts. His health crisis, the understanding that he might have Huntington's, is especially impactful given that he's trying to write a character who is functionally invulnerable and immortal while grappling with his own vulnerabilities and mortality. Uh, add to that the sudden disappearance of his father, and those three conflicts only exacerbate issues in his relationship with his girlfriend that he's unable or unwilling to uh, open up to about it. Uh, and then he concludes by saying, what I love most about it is the resolution at the end. When he goes to see his friend Marco's play about Huntington's disease, he learns a valuable lesson. Something isn't fiction just because you choose not to acknowledge it. He also learns that expressing one's thoughts, fears, and anxieties through art can help one cope with those same thoughts, fears, and anxieties. As a result of his internal growth, he's able to resolve all of his conflicts, the professional, the medical, the personal, in the same way by creating It's a Bird. It's as if the very book we hold in our hands is the solution to the conflicts within it. It is the Superman story he pitches to the editor. Uh, It helps him reconcile his complex feelings about Huntington's, and it is his way of communicating to Lisa and the rest of his family. In my closing lesson, I represent each conflict as a point on the board, and when we link them all through this singular resolution, it forms the S-Shield. 
So I, I thank Scott for, really for sending cool. that in. Yeah. Is there <laughs> anything that, that kind of stood out to you or that resonated? Just like that whole thing sounds really interesting. Um, I'd be curious, uh, you know, Scott, if you're in the, in the Facebook group, let me know, um, how, for how many classes you, you teach this. Cause it's, uh, um, I'm really curious to see like how you approach this. Cause I'm actually teaching, um, so I, at one of the schools I teach at, I teach, it had been up until now a Japanese literature course, but starting this year, it's just literature in general. And they said, you know, you know, do different stuff, do some stuff from, you know, from America, from different countries also show them. Um, and I said, could I use comic books? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. So, and, um, we're actually doing the first one is the, the Sandman number eight, the, uh, the sound of her wings. I'm not sure if you ever read the, the Sandman stuff, but, um, uh, and that, and I was, I was thinking about like, how am I going to do, I want to do something with Superman. I want to do something with Batman. And it's just this question of like, what stories do you choose? And I think, um, it's a bird is maybe an interesting way to do that. So I'm going to have to, I've been thinking about doing, you know, what's so funny about truth, justice in the American way, but now, um, now Scott's giving me something to chew on. So I think I'm going to, I'm definitely going to be thinking about that. And if I should have, if I'll introduce that to them. Right on. Well, yeah, thank you, Scott. And I, you know, it's, I, I have read that before, but now reading it out loud and especially right after the conversation we've had, it's like, I'm glad, I'm glad he got so much out of it and that it's, it's provided so much value to the lessons that he's teaching his students. And, and I will say, I mean, as far as the whole process, not product, you know, that resonates and, you know, there's that great bit in it's a bird where Steven is you know like walking out in the world and, you know, talking about how, mm-hmm you know, maybe for your first story or two, it's like all up here and you get it out and that's your story. But as you continue to do this, it's like, you know, going out, having an interaction with someone in the world, overhearing something. It's like, you never know what's going to be a moment, a scene, a line, you know, that was cool. So like, again, all of that, I, I appreciate it. I think that, you know, it's, it, in a weird way, it's like, if we didn't have the run that followed, like mm-hmm. I, I probably would feel a little bit differently, but just kind of knowing where it all goes. But in any event, it really was, like I said, the, the Superman run itself was kind of this like blank spot, even though I had read it. Right. And, and so I'm glad that I went back to it and now I know what the deal was with it. And it, it was really illuminating to read the graphic novel and now understand how he arrived at that run for better or worse and everything that he was kind of kicking around. So, uh, it, you know, enjoyment level aside, I mean, it was, it was still a, a valuable going back to this idea mm-hmm. of process. Like it wasn't a valuable process to, to kind of go through this. It was how I felt at the end. Well, let me ask let me ask you a question about this. Um, what did you think overall about the the Sorel Supergirl, especially because then we get the the post crisis Kara Zor El so soon after? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I don't know that there was really enough to her character for me to really latch onto more than anything. I mean, I think just this idea that you know, because again, for Lois and Clark, it's you know they don't know if they can have kids, if they would have kids. So, I mean, I think what was probably most interesting to me was just their reaction to this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Clark, you know, taking on a very, very tentative uh, paternal role, right? Like, you know, you know, still being Superman, of course, and, and wanting to guide her and all of that, but, you know, not fully launching into, into dad mode. And of course, interesting knowing where we'll go with Superman in the future with John Kent and all that. But, uh, so, like, it was interesting from that perspective as far as the character herself. And, and you know, we find out she's this girl, Mia, who then the future Smiths, like, engineer into Cyril, but they're, like, separate personalities, and she, like, morphs into one or the other. 
and, and you know, she's very, you know, uh, you know, kind of hot headed and very like, childlike in, in a lot of respects. I, I, I don't know that the character itself really grabbed me or that I, I really, you know, found myself particularly rooting for Cyril or wanting more of the character, but more kind of the responses that elicited from Lois and Clark. That was what I gravitated more towards. But wait, what about you? I, I pretty much the same things. I mean, the, the Lois and Clark responses would have been interesting if we got more of them, but, but Cyril is a character. She just, she didn't, she didn't really grab me that much. Um, I remember when, when she popped up in Superman, Batman, that was my first introduction to her. I'm like, who, who is this? Like, this isn't, um, this isn't matrix. What the hell happened here? Uh, so I'd been just very confused when I saw that happen, especially because then right after that, we get the the Supergirl from Krypton arc, which just confused me even more. <laughs> and I'm just like, OK, so I have no idea what's going on here with with Matrix, with Sorrel. It's just it was a, it was a weird situation. And um, yeah, she didn't really do much for me either. And it's I'm, I'm curious if she had if she has any sort of a fandom or if anybody like kind of gravitated towards her because. I've, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about her, either positively or negatively. I, I agree. I mean, look, I think as we've come to see with with the internet, it's like almost anything has some fan made. Like, <laughs> there's some fans. But right. yeah, I know. I mean, I agree. And like, we're on a lot of the same Twitter circles and stuff. It's like, I don't know. Like, I almost never see people post about this character. And if anyone even can't picture the characters, like short black hair and a largely black costume with a with a like a plain red S, right? Am I picturing that? Mm. Right? I think there's some more yes, color that's in exactly there. Right. And cape? a blue cape too. Okay, the, it's a blue cape. It's it's a really odd costume design. I get that they're trying to differentiate her from from the Matrix Supergirl, I imagine, and like the but it's just it it felt way too plain. Yeah, and again, she this character maybe this whole run, but <laughs> this character kind of maybe does fall victim to to the point in time where she landed, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, we're moving away from the Matrix, Linda Danvers version. We're, we're just about at the point where, where Kara Zor-El is going to show up. And maybe this one kind of got lost in the shuffle. I mean, I feel like it's like another attempt to have a non, like to have a Supergirl, but not have, like to not have Kara Zor-El. And it's like, we already went through all of the business with Matrix and Linda and the Earthborn Angel and, and all of that. And it's like, if they had committed to this, like if she had actually been their daughter from the future, I don't know, that's it. That's that's something. But given the- I think the, that would have been more interesting, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, I feel like that could have been, <laughs> like that could have been the run, right? Like kind of revolving around this daughter, the actual daughter from the future who maybe- wrestles with the legacy of Superman in much the same way that Steven Siegel did and kind of like actually provides a vehicle to explore these, you know, these, these debates and these dilemmas. Well, also that whole idea that, that Siegel had in, in it's a bird about, you know, worried about having kids and passing on this, this, this potentially passing on this disease, right. It'd be interesting to see some of those things worked out with Superman, right. Those concerns about, you know, you're, you're the daughter of Superman, are you going to have to take up his legacy and all that kind of stuff at some point, right? That putting on, putting that kind of expectations on a kid. I mean, that would have been, and we, we've gotten some, we're getting that now with, uh, with Tom Taylor stuff and, and, and Jonathan, but it'd be really interesting to see how they would have all reacted to that. If she really was his daughter and you could always, you know, work around it by saying it was an alternate timeline or something like that. But I think that would have been much more interesting than, than what we got. 
Um, and also, I thought this was kind of a weird thing. This this scene when he has this, uh, it's 195, when he has this um, this conversation, he's telling Sorrel all this stuff. And he says that he's never said any of these things to anyone else. And I found myself thinking there, you know, Connor Kent must be thinking like, dude, what the hell am I? <laughs> <laughs> no, sure. I, you know, I, I think we, I think we've gotten at something here and yes, it's very easy for us to Monday morning quarterback this so many years later, but I also feel like, I don't know, maybe a, <laughs> a stronger editorial hand here. Might have, mm. you know, right, especially reading the graphic novel and all this back and forth with the editor. It's like, I don't know, maybe, and who knows what the internal conversations were, but I but I feel like there was a way to have gotten this maybe to a more interesting place. Also, you know, I know we're talking about how the graphic novel explains how he came to write the book, but the graphic novel came out after his run, right? Unless I've totally gotten mm-hmm. my math out of whack, but, but right, like the run came out and then we got this, this, it's a bird graphic novel. That's my recollection of the timeline, I believe. Oh, that's, inter- I did not know that. So that's, um, um, yeah, I, I, I believe you're right. I'm just, I, I did not know that I wasn't paying. I, my assumption was that it, it came out first, but, um, uh, but it makes sense that it, it says here it's 2004 is when that came out and his Superman stuff. Yeah. Started coming out in, it ended in 2004. So it looks like this was kind of like the the capstone to his run, I guess, in a way. Yeah. So again, like I said, you know, for anyone who's been listening to us and, you know, if we've piqued your curiosity enough, I, yeah, I would I, I would recommend reading It's a Bird. Uh, I, I would. And if you have mm-hmm. access to the issues, if they're sitting in a short box somewhere and you can dig them out or you see them, uh, you know, at, at your local comic shop or something like that, I mean, yeah, you know, give, give them a read if, if, if this is a... Uh, kind of sparked anything. So, you know, certainly if mm-hmm. there's anything else you want to circle back to, I'm happy to, you know, but I do want to, I do want to spend at least a few minutes on these other runs, the Gail Simone and, and Mark for Hyden runs on the other titles. Like I said, I yeah, there is just one thing. Cause this, this popped up during the Casey run too. And we didn't speak about it then, but, um, Kellex has this weird hip hop, um, speech pattern. Yeah. Do you remember what the situ- what the reason was for that? Because I have no idea what that was about. It's Natasha Irons programmed him to speak like that, ah, and I okay. I have to double check. I think that happens in a Mark Schultz Man of Steel issue. I I could be wrong okay. on that, but that's where that comes from. But yeah, I know it's, it's that makes sense. <laughs> I know it's, I had totally forgotten that, and then reading this run, I was like, oh yeah, like that was a thing. It's so weird because you can so tell that it's a white guy writing this dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that. I don't think this would fly now. I mean, and not that it's, no, I don't want to paint not. it as like, oh, this was so problematic, it, you know, but, but yeah, I still don't think, you, I don't think you would see this now. So, but so anyway, so the Gail Simone and Mark for and runs, like I said, I don't really have a ton here. I was struck by again, how much table setting they were doing for infinite crisis and it really puts you in that in that time period uh which i i do have fondness for and look we've got a massive run on of the of crisis episodes coming up so we'll be talking about infinite crisis so this was kind of a nice way to kind of get me back in that mode but uh you said the simone and burn run in particular you you enjoyed yeah i mean i thought it was it's definitely not simone's best work i think it's not even burn's best work i think his art is definitely showing its age and a lot of these issues and some of the proportions feel off. Um, and, uh, but I think I thought what I liked most about it was the, the interaction between Lois and Clark. I thought 
Simone did a pretty good job of capturing them. Um, I wrote in um, for action 833. My note is just Lois takes no shit. <laughs> I, I think I, I like how she gave, how she wrote Lois a lot. And I think I would have liked to see more of her doing a run. That's not so tied to like this place setting, like you said. Um, and even like the introduction of Livewire, right? Cause you're thinking you're introducing a, you know, a fan favorite character from the animated series you think it's going to be as significant as like Harley Quinn's introduction was. And I read that issue and I was just kind of, you know, disappointed, I guess, because it just didn't seem that impressive. I, I agree. And, and for anyone who, again, if you, if you've never read this or you don't remember it again, we're, we're talking a very, like a half a dozen issues here, a very short run uh, right before infinite crisis. And essentially we get three, two-part stories. There's one with Dr. Polaris who's having this split personality episode and uh, Superman is able to recognize that and uh, discover that the split personality is is the, the villain's mother who he's imagining as this adversary and that kind of mm. helps win the day. Uh, we get a two-parter where Superman has to go up against the uh, society, the evil, you know, the secret society of villain members, Black Adam and... Um, Dr. Psycho, right? Dr. Psycho. Dr. Psycho. Yeah. From, uh, who I, who I only know now because of the Harley, Harley Quinn, Quinn. series. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh man. That's what I, that's where I went to. And, uh, and then we get a two parter with the queen of fables and then that live wire, uh, issue, which, mm -hmm. uh, part of that story where Lois has been abducted by a daily planet staffer who she had been working with. Um, that's, you know, that kind of continues from prior issues, but essentially that's it. Like that's, that's the run. And yeah, I agree with you about Byrne, you know, going back to, you know, his, his work on Superman back in the day, you know, I enjoyed that a lot. The, you know, this not so much, but it's certainly fine. Um, and as far as the stories, I mean, they were, again, I, like they were enjoyable. There wasn't like a ton that really stood out to me. I mean, I, I agree with you as far as Lois goes. Uh, Simone's first issue opens with Superman, uh, you know, in, in Africa, kind of, uh, you know, handling a difficult situation. And he's got his, you know, his cape around him, like, like, uh, like tribal garb. And, and one of the women mm -hmm. gives him the name, what is it? One heart, many homes. Something like that. Yeah. Right. Which is, is a nice idea. And he's a citizen of the world and, and all of that in the Black Adam, Dr. Psycho two-parter. I think it's there or it might be in the previous one. I forget. They're kind of blending together. We read a lot of stuff, but but there is a moment mm -hmm. where Black Adam, you know, you see the respect that Black Adam has for Superman, even though they're on opposite sides, right? And there's a bridge that's collapsing and Black Adam, you know, he's a member of the secret society of villains, right? But he stays behind to help Superman mm -hmm. save the bridge. And I thought that was a great moment. Yeah, I've I've never been a Black Adam guy. I've never understood the the kind of appeal that he has so many people. Um, granted, I've not read a whole ton of stuff with him either. But but reading that issue, I kind of I okay, I'm like okay, I can kind of, I can see it a little bit more now. I can kind of understand where people are coming from with him. I did think in that issue um, in um, Action Comics uh, eight thirty one, uh, I love this moment where where Cheetah says that um, that Bizarro's speech patterns give her a headache, and I'm just like my note is she speaks for us all. <laughs> Yeah. Look, this is my theory. I feel like everybody hates this backwards speak. So mm. I don't know why. I don't know why it continues to be a thing. It's like, I think we, we're all in agreement on this. But but anyway, but yeah, I, again, I think like that Black Adam thing was great. I don't know that the hierarchy of power changed, but it was a, it was. Nice. <laughs> it was a nice yeah. 
Well, I, I like the the Doctor Polaris stuff too. I thought that the whole twist with uh, Repulse being like this his, his mother, basically. I thought that was a that was a cool little twist. I really enjoyed that. That that was probably my favorite uh, story out of the of the Simone stuff was was that. Nice. Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 hard to judge this because it never really had much of an opportunity to get off the ground. And it's, you know, right. it, maybe it would have been different if, if Simone came in and, and like told a six issue story, right. That you can kind of look at this entire right. arc. But again, we end up with just like a few of these little two parters. And again, they're, they're, they're readable. They're enjoyable. There's some good moments in there, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, if, if you were going to ask me to recommend a Gail Simone book, I mean, I, I would not, I would not give you this, run as like an example of like oh this is something you should read yeah i probably give you her deadpool i probably give you her birds of prey um secret six but i this is not something i would say you have to read this agreed agreed and then you were, were not so hot on the verheiden venice superman run no the verheiden one like especially i felt like the the attempts to try to make people mistrustful of superman and i know it ties into what was going on with infinite crisis and all that but it just felt extremely forced to me. I mean, like even down to Jimmy, Jimmy's being, my note is Jimmy's being a judgmental prick. Yeah. You know, so the first couple of issues of that, right. First, I really love, you know, I know Ed Bennis is the cheesecake you are, but I do love his style. And so I, I was happy to have him there. I mean, it's funny. It's like we almost, if we had swapped creative partners, we could have had a birds of prey reunion, right? We had Gail Simone mm -hmm. and, and Ed Bennis, but anyway, you know, the first couple issues of their run, we, we pick up with Superman in his new rainforest fortress of solitude, right? Where he has relocated uh, after the events of For Tomorrow. Yeah. And and I guess it's the events of For Tomorrow that he's still kind of grappling with because we pick up with him in kind of like a weird place emotionally, right? And he's been gone for weeks right. and lost track of time and Lois doesn't even know where he is. Yeah. Um, yep. Speaking of Bennis's artwork, I thought generally I enjoy his work, but I thought, you know, he's, it felt like he was trying a little bit too hard to squeeze in some TNA, like the, the, um, the, the South American woman, she's, you know, <laughs> the, the outfit she's wearing. And then this, this, um, I don't know, daily planet intern or whatever, Kelly, I mean, I, I wrote in two twenty one. she's, she's wearing a see-through shirt over a black bra tied above her midriff. I mean, I get it's a, the get the daily planet's a casual environment, but she looks like she's going out to the club. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's got to be, you know, <laughs> like some kind of dress like the New York Times. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I would be surprised to see someone, you know, walking, walking around like that. So, yeah, that was probably pushing it a bit. But, yeah, I mean, you, know, you so you see Superman and, and initially he's, uh, again, kind of been working with this uh, with this this village there near near where his fortress is. And then he's unable to save them from this terrorist attack because he's contending with an OMAC, which apparently was his first encounter with an OMAC. So again, like we're really mm -hmm. planting the seeds for infinite crisis and then they lose faith in him. And, uh, and then the subsequent issue, there's the villain black rock who has this stone that gives him powers and Superman's able to use his heat vision to, uh, to, to, you know, depower him, but pours on the heat vision to such a degree that Jimmy and this other intern are just so scared, uh, which <laughs> again, to your point, I it's like, what, come on. Yeah, it felt, I mean, I, I could maybe get Kelly's reaction to that. Maybe you can make an argument for that, but, but Jimmy, come on, this is, Jimmy is, I, even if Superman is acting weird, Jimmy would be the first one to say, no, there's something going on here. There's, there's something else happening. You know, it's Superman, but he's just, and it, it continues. Like even in 221, I wrote, uh, it feels like Jimmy's the one under, under mind control. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, again, as far as kind of other threads in this run, uh, you know, we have Lois trying to get the, get the low down on the Omax. We have Superman, you know, protecting her with one of his robots and kind of the tension that that mm-hmm. causes between them. Uh, we have that, that very busty terrorist. She then becomes the next Black Rock and uh, Supergirl and Superman fight her. There's sort of a farewell to Supergirl as she decides she's going to go off in space with Donna Troy. So there's that. I, honestly, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think my favorite one, not I think, definitely my favorite one, there was a Lex, there was an issue that uh, focused a lot on on Lex. And, you know, for people who you know don't remember the infinite crisis landscape, at this period in time, you had the business suit Lex who was with the secret society pulling strings and all of that. And then you also had the Lex in the, you know, in the green war suit who was kind of out there. And, you know, it took a while, you know, I think at the time there was, you know, probably some confusion of like, what, why is Lex being depicted differently? And then of course, what you find out is that the secret society Lex is actually Alexander Luther right from earth Mm -hmm. three. So that's the payoff that we're ultimately getting. But I think it's the second to last issue of the Verheiden run. A lot of it focuses on, on our Lex in the, you know, the, the green war suit Lex and uh, you know, contending with Omax and, and everything. And we get a lot of flashbacks to his time in Smallville and how he was this outsider and Clark was the only person who was, you know, had, had befriended him. And uh, again, going back to what we were saying before, an instance, like a rare instance of that birthright, continuity and mm-hmm. timeline being reflected in the books. So I, th- that one, I like, it came out of nowhere, <laughs> then, then, you know, focusing on Lex. It's like, well, you know, it just, it felt very out of place, but I enjoyed it nonetheless. There's also that whole thing about, I'm about him saying that he came from money. I thought that was okay. Cause we're, we're still in post-crisis. Like, I don't remember that even in birthright. It wasn't really, didn't seem like he was, uh, that Lionel Luther was that rich in that. So that felt a little odd to me as just like a weird continuity note. But otherwise, I really, I think I agree with you. I think that was probably my favorite issue of the bunch. Um, there's also this, uh, this OMAC issue, the, the aftermath in uh, 222. I don't know what's going on with Lois in this issue. Like when she tells, when she's saying um, to the Superman robot, um, you know, she says, uh, you know, do me a favor. Next time you see my husband, my real husband, tell him I'm not sure if this marriage is worth it anymore. That felt like a reach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, in both of these Supermans, <laughs> uh, yeah, Lois's depiction is, uh, you know, just the, these moments that just kind of feel off. So yeah, that felt, that mm-hmm. felt pretty extreme. You know, we mentioned- We also uh, get- Oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. no, you go, please. I was going to mention um, the uh, the Eradicator issue um, where we get this um, this new design for him with the more like Kryptonian esque uh, design. Uh, what did you think of of that design more than anything else? Because I think the story's not really didn't really impress me that much, but I I thought that design was a really cool look for him. I liked it too. I liked it too. I mean, I think it I think it does call to mind that original uh, Krypton Man look. Mm-hmm. right from back in the day. So I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, yeah, is it my all-time favorite look for Eradicator? Probably not, but it was cool. I did like it. I did like that. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I thought it was a nice nice little look. Um, what do you think of the, the South American fortress in general? Because it feels like it feels like this run is kind of showing you why you shouldn't have a fortress nearby anybody else. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, 
decades upon decades of stories, I get why you want to try to mix it up sometimes, but, and it's a fine line. And sometimes I guess you don't know until you try something, but I feel like this is an instance of like, Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like there's a reason why it's in the Arctic and it's in the middle of nowhere. And, and the fact that it's, you know, I think the, the, for their first issue opens with the government kind of seeing it like through their satellite technology. Like, no, no, no. Like this is something that needs to be secret, needs to be away from people. And I think the stories that follow here, well, especially that first one, illustrate why. And so I don't know, like it was just kind of an odd choice. I'm glad that it proved to be short-lived. You've heard Kevin Smith's uh, stand-up, I guess is the best way to describe it, about his experience working on Superman Lives, right? Oh, yes. So one of my favorite parts in there is when um, when he's reading the script to John Peters and John Peters says like, well, you know, Brainiac goes to Superman's fortress. So we got to have someone there that, you know, get, what about Superman's guards? And Kevin Smith's just like, it, it's the fortress of solitude. Nobody's up there. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of what I was. That was I, that line was in my head as I was reading these issues about the fortress in South America. Yeah. No, I'm with you. No, I, <laughs> no, I remember that. Well, that. You know, again, we did our whole episode on Superman Lives, the unmade uh, Tim Burton movie. And that was in my research. I went right back to that, you know, that Kevin Smith Q&A and, and everything that he laid out there. It's it's so fascinating. Oh, what I was going to say, you know, Mark Verheiden, you know, wrote for Smallville. So, you know, it was, it was cool to mm-hmm. kind of see that crossover. And maybe unsurprisingly, my favorite issue was the one with Lex referencing a past with Clark in Smallville. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I mean, that. I thought that was... That was definitely the strongest issue uh, of his run. I mean, I thought he he did a good job of, you know, telling this like untold story. And honestly, I wish we saw more of this kind of stuff in Birthright. So I was um, it was it was nice to to get that little taste of it here. Exactly. It's, you know, and again, like I said, we have a lot more coming on the crisis events and infinite crisis in particular. That's the one that I have far and away the most personal connection to, because that was the first true crisis event. I mean, I know we had zero hour crisis in time, but you know, infinite crisis, I mean, it was a direct sequel to crisis on infinite earths. And there was just so much leading up to it. And that was the height of my Mm -hmm. comic book, you know, buying, reading, collecting, working at the store, just like devouring this stuff. So I have a lot of fondness for that time. And, you know, again, if you say crisis, that's what my head is going to is infinite crisis. Mm -hmm. But I do think in looking at these issues, and and I think I probably felt the same way as I was reading them at the time, and I didn't really think about it too much, but now kind of taking this longer view, it's like, this is one of the downsides about putting so much in the buildup to an event, because I think you do look at these runs. And, you know, we did an episode on the Greg Rucka Adventures of Superman run, again, happening at the same time too. All the ruined stuff was great, but the final few issues of Rucka's run again, fell victim to the infinite crisis setup. So it's like, you know, these events mm-hmm. can be cool. They can be a lot of fun. But I think you look at these runs that we're talking about here. And again, they, I don't think that they ever really kind of coalesce into something, you know, truly lasting and truly meaningful because they're serving something else. Yeah, I I remember a lot of that happening. For for me, the peak DC crossover, uh, my, my collecting was Our Worlds at War. That was kind of like the big one that was happening when I was buying so many different books at the time. And I get some of that same, um, I had some of that same, same thoughts during that with all the different tie-ins and stuff. Um, or even like some of the Marvel stuff. Like I remember with, um, the Secret Wars thing where they, 
the funniest one was uh, the Spider Gwen book because it gets it had just launched and then like five issues later they relaunched the book to coincide with the new status quo. So it's like if you look at you know it must have been a nightmare for people with their collections. Wait, which Spider Gwen twenty fifteen volume is this or whatever it was? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. That's nuts. Well, I have enjoyed this immensely. Is there anything about? Any of these runs or the graphic novel that we didn't talk about that that you would like to? I don't think so. I think we covered, just scrolling through my notes real quick, I think we covered pretty much everything in here. Oh, except um, in Siegel's run when Lois became a TV reporter, right? Oh, and she yeah. just gets, she, when she gets very angry and she leaves the Daily Planet. Now, it it's a weird situation because I noticed that in, um, you know, like 194, 195 is when she becomes, she goes to the TV station, she leaves the planet. And then 196, she's done with the TV station. But then in 198, she's back at the TV station. I'm just like, I don't know what's, like, talk about, you know, editors having to pay some more attention here. I think that's definitely an issue where it seemed like there was, there was something, somebody was not, was not paying attention to what was going on in the, those books at the time. Yeah. And also, you know, that big dramatic moment where she, you know, st you know, she's mad at Perry and Clark for keeping her in the dark. And then she takes this opportunity as a news anchor. I mean, I feel like it's initially presented as like, oh, I'm leaving. But then it's like, no, no, no. Oh, well, I'm mm -hmm. still staying at the planet, but I'm also doing this. And it's just like, all right. You know, a little hard to track. There was also, again, I don't mean to keep dumping on this, but then there was also you know, like one issue where Clark is on the farm with Jonathan talking about how, you know, they might sell the farm and move into town and things like that. And it was, mm. it was a lovely scene, but it just, I don't know. It just kind of felt like tacked on. I mean, it wasn't, you know, there was really, I don't know. You, you know what though, in fairness, I mean, I'm trying to look at this as like what this run was trying to say and what it was about. And it's like, well, all right, take a step back. It's like this guy was writing Superman for a year. And so, yeah, there's one issue where he talks to the Flash. And there's one issue where he talks to Mom and Pa. Like, it's fine. It doesn't need to all kind of maybe, you know, uh, thread together the way I might want. So, mm -hmm. You know, it's fine. And and look, if we didn't get a scene with the Kents, I probably would complain about that. So it's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, no, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, yeah, the, the, the overall opinion of, of all three of these runs is that, you know, there's some moments, there's some good stuff here, but I think um, of what we looked at, I think it's a bird was definitely the thing I enjoyed the most. Um it is colored a little bit by the fact that the Superman run doesn't even approach any of these ideas that were really interesting that he starts playing with in, in this. And then we just, nothing, nothing. So I was just very disappointed by that aspect of it. I, w <laughs> I wonder if if the, any of the editors in the, at DC generally, or specifically in the Superman group, if they read It's a Bird after this run, and we're like, what the hell? Like, where, where, are, where are all these ideas? <laughs> I do wonder about that, too. That's a good point. Because <laughs> I could, like that would drive me nuts. I'd be like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Like, we're doing this business with the future Smiths and you were sitting on this, you know, the, the, this dissertation on the meaning of the colors of the costume. I, but I, again, I, I think with the value of It's a Bird, it's again, to Scott's point, I think the process and. What you see Siegel going through in all those interludes, it's in fairness to him, it's not necessarily, oh, this is what my run will be about, but it's just him trying to unlock the character, a character that's been yeah. closed off to him for his reasons. So, 
uh, you know, it reminds me of, of something I say about Mark Miller, because you read something like Superman Red Sun and then you go and read some of his other stuff. And it's just like, I want to, I wish I was standing next to him so I could smack him and just be like, why can't you write like Red Sun all the time? I kind of felt the same situation here. Like I wanted to smack Siegel. It's like, what the hell? Where are all these ideas? You have all these great ideas you're playing with. And then you just, you give us this weird story about this knockoff Supergirl from the future. I hear you. Oh, one final question to send us out. Because I did mean, this is a, a nice kind of way to come full circle. But, you know, Siegel eventually in It's a Bird comes around on Superman. You know, he has this mm -hmm. catharsis with his father, which we've talked about. He then shares with the reader what that comic was about that he read in, in the hospital as a kid. And it was with the hunter who summons these animals. And, you know, as a young kid, like he didn't, he didn't you know, look at the plot holes. He was just kind of caught up in the escape of, of Superman and, and kind of this ultimate conclusion that he articulates about, you know, how the adventures continue and how, as long as you're looking forward to what's next, you're crossing hurdles or like something to that effect. Did you feel like his ultimate kind of acceptance of Superman, understanding of Superman tracked or felt earned like when you got to that point where like he's come around on super did you feel like okay like i get how we got there to some extent but not completely i think there's there's an element of just kind of like writer hand waving stuff type of going on in there but it did feel like you know you're i mean he goes from calling superman a fascist to then at the end just being like no actually i came around completely i don't really yeah it doesn't that ending did not feel completely earned. I get that that's probably what Siegel went through himself. I get that he, you know, probably had these same ideas, but it does feel like we're missing a few steps. Okay. That's how I felt. And I was curious to get someone else's take. Cause it's like, I don't know. We just missed something, but uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's helpful to hear from someone else. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, audience, if you haven't read it, check it out, make your own opinions. Let us know what you think. I'd, I'd be curious to get more, more perspectives on it, but Harry, thank you very much for uh, for joining me for this. You know, I don't know that any, you know, we looked at four things, right? Three runs in the graphic novel. And I don't know that I would have done an episode on any one of those individually. But together, I'm very pleased with this episode we got. So I thank you. And I encourage everyone to check out the Superhero Cinephiles podcast. Is there anywhere in particular you would like to direct them? Uh, so it's superherocinephiles.com is the website. Um, I've also got uh, my other podcast, Japan on Film, is starting back up again. Where, so if you like Japanese movies, we got the, the ninth season of that is coming out. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, it'll probably definitely be available. And other than that, if you're interested in, in my work, um, percivalconstantine.com is my website. I've got uh, like 30-some novels published. Uh I am beginning work now on a comic book project, uh, which is kind of actually inspired by the um, by the the Zack Snyder Justice League. It was um, an idea someone had, like, what if Zack Snyder continued the Justice League, but with public domain heroes? So that kind of stuck in my my head, and I ended up working with my buddy Thomas DJ and coming up with some ideas. We've got a great artist named Eric Johns who's doing it. I'm doing the inking and the coloring and the lettering on it as well as scripting it. And um, we're planning to kick, to kickstart or crowdfund. It's not launched yet, but if check out percivalconstantine.com, if it might be out, it might be available by then. It might not. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Very cool. Oh, that's all. That's wonderful. All very exciting. I look forward to checking that out and I hope the audience will as well. And 
I was fortunate enough. I was a guest on a couple of episodes of Superhero Cinephiles. We did the Spider-Man 3 movie and we did the original mm-hmm. uh, Tom Jane Punisher movie. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so if anyone wants to check out any of the episodes or, or those in particular, I encourage you to do so. And Perry probably the, the favorite one that, that you came on was when he talked about the, the secret identities. Oh, uh, that's right. Yes. Different aspects of that. That was a lot of fun. We did there. What a happy, po- I, I, yeah, I, I don't know how I, I forgot that. That was, that was a lot of fun. And like, what a happy postscript to that, because we're talking all mm-hmm. about, you know, this was the point in time where Bendis had had Superman reveal his identity to the world. And then not long after that, the secret identity was reinstated. So, oh, what a, mm-hmm. what a, what a happy, happy addendum to that episode. So yeah, the three that I yeah. was on, I, and I thank you for having me. And then uh, Perry is going to be a guest on an upcoming episode of my Power Rangers podcast, Summoning the Zords, which we're going to record in a few minutes, but you'll hear it a little bit down the line. So again, folks, I hope you'll check out any or all of that. Thank you as always for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. We will be back in one week with our next all new episode. And of course, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.